open Scripture together to the book of Acts. In your pew Bible, page 1175, Acts chapter 15. We'll also read from the letter of James, the chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. But let's begin in the book of Acts chapter 15. And you'll see that this connects with our passage in James, our text in James 1. For here in Acts 15, we meet the man called James, who later we discover is the writer of the letter of James. So, Acts 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith." Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles." After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord." And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now we turn to the letter of James in the Pew Bible, page 1288, James chapter 1. And we'll read the first 18 verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So far, the reading of Holy Scripture. So the text this morning comes from the letter of James, the opening verse. Let's just read that together again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we will sing Psalm 31, the stanzas 5, 11, and 12. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned, I hope to preach a series of sermons on the letter of James over the coming months. I hope that we can cover the whole letter together. It's a New Testament book that in many ways stands out from all the others. Probably you've had a chance to read it maybe a few times in the course of your life, and you may have sensed that it's different. It's a book with many commands. It's a book with some very sharp messages, and sharp language, especially for the rich. James stresses certain things. For example, he stresses the need for good works to accompany faith. Faith without works is dead. And when you read through the letter, you discover that there's very little talk of the work or the person of Jesus Christ. That's really strange when you compare that to the letters of Paul or Peter. There's a huge contrast. Paul and Peter and John, in their letters, they often write a great deal about Jesus. They tell a lot about His work, about what God the Father was doing and is doing through the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation and bringing grace and His Holy Spirit. But, but James tells us hardly anything about these matters. The name of Jesus is mentioned only two times in this whole letter, with very little to no elaboration. And did you know that the Holy Spirit isn't even mentioned once? So this is odd by comparison. And then if you ask, well, what exactly is the message of James? Well, what is its theme, really? Well, if you consult the commentaries, you would find at least a dozen answers. James goes from subject to subject with seemingly little rhyme or reason to it, very little connection. We, we saw a little bit of that in chapter 1. He speaks of trials. Then he speaks of wisdom, prayer, then he mentions the rich and the poor, then temptations, and after that, the goodness of God the Father. It feels like a hodgepodge, 
like a, a little bit like the book of Proverbs, kind of a random selection of wise sayings. Well, all of this strangeness and all of this lack of concentration on the grace of God in Jesus Christ, together with James's big-time insistence on good works, that made some people nervous. It made someone like Martin Luther, for example, very uneasy. And it caused him to wonder out loud in, in print and in person whether it should even be in the Bible, this book of James. But it is in the Bible. And the church has always recognized its inspired quality. So what we have in this letter is not merely the opinion of James, but it's the message of James's Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And when that Lord and Master speaks every word of His, whether it's instruction or reprimand or warning, every word of the Lord is always rooted, brothers and sisters, in grace. Well, we hope to see that this morning as I bring you this word of the Lord, under this theme, the Lord's unlikely messenger instructs his troubled people in the way of life. We'll see two things, a child born of grace and then a church living by grace. When you compare the beginning of this letter to the way Paul or Peter starts their letters, then uh, James comes across very lean very simple. He writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Straight up. And right away we catch something of the writer's style that runs throughout this whole letter. He's crisp, he's short, and to the point. But what is the point? Well, to understand that, we have to first ask, who is this James? Obviously, it's someone the recipients of the letter knew very well, so that the author felt no need to identify himself with anything further than a very simple James, a servant of God. He doesn't have to give his father's name. He doesn't have to give any other connectors. And since this letter is not a letter to a single congregation, like to one congregation in particular, like most of Paul's letters were, like to Colossae or to Ephesus, this letter is intended to be circulated very widely through the many churches. James would have to be, this James would have to be very widely known and well-respected. Well, when you think of a James that's widely known and respected, which one pops to your mind? Perhaps the most famous James is the one that we meet in the Gospels, one of the twelve disciples, brother to John, John and James, the two sons of Zebedee. In fact, that particular James was close to the Lord, for often we read that Peter, James, and John were allowed to accompany Jesus for certain special moments in his ministry. Think of the transfiguration on the mountain or when the Lord Jesus was in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then those three were invited along. The other disciples, they had to stay back. So is the writer of this letter James the Apostle, brother of John? 
Well, the answer to this, most everybody agrees, is simply no, because this James was killed by King Herod fairly early in the years after Pentecost. Too soon to have written a letter like this. So James the Apostle seems out of the question, but who then is this James? Well, there's a couple of other Jameses in the New Testament, but there's, there's one who, who barely breaks surface in the Gospels, but who becomes quite prominent in the church and is mentioned several times in the book of Acts, and that is James, the biological brother of Jesus. That's the James we read about in Acts 15. This James was quite a leader, apparently, very influential in the early church. Earlier in Acts 12, after James the Apostle has been killed, that's mentioned in the early verses of chapter 12, Peter is put into prison because Herod wants to kill Peter too. But Peter is rescued by an angel from prison, and he goes to tell some of the disciples that he has been set free by this angel. And then he says something to those disciples. He says this, tell these things. In other words, tell about my escape. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. He singles out this James. Paul will later do the same kind of thing. He does this in Galatians, his letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 19. When he describes, he's describing there how the Lord Jesus brought Paul to become an apostle. Then he says that he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James, the Lord's brother. We don't often think about the siblings of Jesus, do we? We don't know a ton about them, but we do know from Matthew 13 that Jesus had four brothers whose names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. We also know from that chapter that he had at least two sisters. Could be more, but at least two. So by today's standards, we, we would say that Jesus grew up in a large family of at least seven children. And since the name of James is mentioned first in Matthew's account in chapter 13, it would seem that James was the next in line after Jesus, who was, of course, the oldest in the family. But while we don't know a lot about their personalities or their circumstances, one thing becomes crystal clear when you read through the Gospels and pay attention to these siblings, the siblings of Jesus did not believe in him. That's the big thing. We read about them appearing with their mother Mary outside the place where Jesus was preaching, and they want to speak with him. They don't go inside, but they stay on the outside. It's a posture of disapproval over what Jesus is doing. In fact, Mark tells us in his account that his family heard about him gathering together a group of disciples, and, and they said to themselves, he is out of his mind. They thought Jesus had gone nuts.
But what started out as concern for this family member and even alarm for Jesus' mental state soon became something other. It became mean-spirited, insulting unbelief, at least as far as his brothers are concerned. John writes about that in his Gospel, chapter 7. In that chapter, Jesus was lingering in Galilee. The Feast of Booths was just underway or soon to be underway in Jerusalem. So his brothers, they kind of get on Jesus' case. And John tells us that they said to their brother Jesus, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And to leave no doubt as to the attitude of behind those words, John adds this description, For not even his brothers believed in him. His biological brothers are piling on him scorn, ridicule, taunting him. That's what Jesus got from James and his other brothers. Can you imagine, congregation, the, the pain, the pain of that level of rejection experienced by Jesus? Some of us have brothers or sisters who do not believe in Jesus. And it is upsetting, isn't it, to say the least. Maybe you've had a sibling make fun of you, mock you for believing in God, for following Christ. Insults from those who are close to home, they hurt the most, don't they? people you grew up with, family members who should support one another in serving God, siblings who should have your back in a life that is already difficult enough, filled with so much opposition from the world, suddenly you find them undermining you, undermining your convictions, making you feel stupid for your faith, and even outright attacking your beliefs. The Lord Jesus, brothers and sisters, He's been there. Only worse, because He wasn't just another believer, but He is Himself the one who is believed in. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. And His own siblings, including His brother James, did not believe Him. That's this James who writes this letter. It's mind-boggling on the face of it, isn't it? How did an insulting sibling become a follower of Jesus? How did a denier of the Christ become a respected leader in Christ's church and a writer of an inspired letter to the Lord's people? How could that happen? Well, there's only one answer, brothers and sisters. That is by grace alone. Same as what happened to the persecutor Saul, who became Paul the Apostle. Same as what happened to you and to me. The grace of the Lord Jesus caught up 
with him as he did with all of us. And when the grace of Jesus caught up with James, his whole world shook and everything changed. And we even know a little bit about how that unfolded, how the grace of Christ caught up with James. For Paul gives us a glimpse in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul recounts in that chapter how, how Christ rose from the dead and he made appearances to various people who then became witnesses to that great fact. And this is what Paul writes. Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. What a meeting that would have been, don't you think? And what mercy, what compassion the Lord Jesus had on his own biological brother who had earlier refused to believe in him to now come to James the ridiculer to show his resurrected person to him, to open the eyes of James. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how James is a child of grace? an undeserving sinner snatched from the fire when he didn't even think he needed saving. If you had been in James's shoes, if you had seen the Lord appear to you in the flesh after having ridiculed and mocked him in unbelief, how would that affect your perspective and change your attitude toward Christ and toward others? How could you not be eternally thankful to the Lord? And how could you not be ever humble and compassionate toward others who maybe like yourself don't get it until their eyes are opened by grace? You see, that's, that's the mindset of James. That's the attitude of James that we have to have in the back of our minds as we read through this powerful letter, lest we come away with the wrong impression of what, what James is all about. When you read James, at first, it can come across with a, with a rather hard edge, with a lot of hard words and, and hit you between the eyes, commands and warnings. Well, let's remember a couple of things. Remember that the Lord Jesus could come across with hard-hitting warnings sometimes. But there's always a bigger context in Jesus' ministry and in the ministry of those He sends. We have to keep that context in mind. You know, of course, that Jesus loved the broken. Christ went after the lost. Think of the demoniac across the sea. Think of all the people he healed. Think of Nicodemus the Pharisee. Jesus was compassionate to the, stubborns, the stubborn people like James. And so when Jesus reprimands and when Jesus commands 
things for us to do. That comes from a heart of compassion. It comes from a loving shepherd's heart. Well, it's the same with James. He is filled with the Spirit of Christ. He loves the people he's writing to. James could never forget how he had been loved, though he himself was in a loveless state, that he had been shown mercy when he wasn't showing mercy to anybody, let alone Jesus. So let's read James's letter with that in mind. James, the Lord's servant, is eager to instruct the people of the Lord in the Christian way. He's eager to see them walk in the way of life. Like the Lord Jesus, he wants God's people to live in the joy and freedom of serving God, for which Christ gave his life. James is humble. That comes out in the rest of his introduction when he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't make himself out to be anything more than he is servant. Servant of the Lord Jesus. You know, he could have written that differently and still spoken full truth. He could have said, James, brother of the Lord Jesus, or James, son of Mary and Joseph, brother of Jesus. But he doesn't go there. He's not looking for fame. He's not, not looking to impress people by his credentials or his connection to the family of Jesus. He's just a simple servant intending to do the Master's will. How about you and me, brothers and sisters? Is that what we are? Are we simple servants trying to do our Master's will in humility? Do you think of yourself in that way, that, that you are a servant of the Lord? That's what that name Lord means. It means Master. And as much as we are children of our Father, we are also servants of the Lord. A servant sets out to please his or her master. A servant obeys orders. We're trying to honor someone besides ourselves, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that how you're running your life? Even Jesus said of himself, I, came, I come not to be served, but to serve. That's the Christian way. So when you look at the choices in your life, there's all kinds of them that we have to make. Are you looking at them and making those choices with this thought in mind? What would make the Lord Jesus most pleased? What would honor Him, make Him happy? When I have to choose a school to go to, or a girlfriend or boyfriend to ask out, or a job to get, or volunteer opportunities, or a place to live, do we have that question in mind? How best can I serve my Master? James the arrogant 
unbelieving sibling of Jesus has become James, the humble servant of the Lord, doing the Lord's will. A child of grace. And he's writing a letter to help the Lord's church live by grace. We get that sense as well in how he describes the people he's writing to. James says this, he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Well, who's that? Who are these 12 tribes? We don't find that expression in any of the other letters of the New Testament. Actually, we don't find this whole expression anywhere else in the Bible, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So we have to ask, well, what tribes, why 12, and what's a dispersion? Well, to any Jew in, in James's day, and there were many Jews among the Christians, a reference to the 12 tribes would instantly bring to mind the 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, the offspring of Abraham. For most of the Old Testament period, at least from Exodus onward, we read time and again of Israel and of their 12 tribes. And yet, if you remember the Old Testament history, at a certain moment, those 12 tribes, they split apart into the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And they were at odds with each other. They called the north Israel. They called the south Judah. And for hundreds of years, they lived apart. This happened after the reign of Solomon. So, that the 12 tribes were hardly, even historically, they were hardly a united bunch for a great deal of their history. And to make this expression more complex, the history of the existence of the 12 tribes, that came to an end in a certain year, 722 B.C. That was the year when those 10 tribes in the north were attacked by the Assyrians and wiped out what the Assyrians didn't kill and destroy in the land, they dragged off into exile to Assyria, never to return again. The ten tribes were lost. They're still lost. The only tribes left were Judah and Benjamin in the south. And Benjamin was so small, it, it got taken up into the tribe of Judah. So by the time that James and Jesus were walking the earth, there was basically only one tribe left, the tribe of Judah, which is why though the people from that tribe and, and the people of God were always called Jews, Jews from Judah. So there's only one tribe left out of 12. What's James talking about when he speaks of the 12 tribes? Well, it can't be the literal 12 tribes, can it? But what it is, is the spiritual 12 tribes that make up the restored Israel of God. You can find a number of prophecies in the Old Testament that speak about God's promise to restore Israel, to bring the 12 tribes back together again. Ezekiel mentions this several times in his book, chapters 34, 36, 37. In those chapters, God speaks of gathering His people from the nations into one flock. With one shepherd over them, the great Messiah, the great Prince of David. We know that's going to be Christ. 
In chapter 37, Ezekiel uses the image of two, two sticks. On one stick, he writes the name Judah, and on the other stick, he writes the name Israel. And the Lord says, put those two sticks together, make one stick, because I'm going to restore my people. James himself, in Acts 15, mentions this restoration to the council in Jerusalem, which, which we read together. He quotes from the prophecy of Amos. God says there, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will restore it. So there was this expectation among the remnant of God's people that when the Messiah came, there would be also a renewal of Israel. And Jesus fully knew this as well. That's why he chose 12 disciples. You ever wonder why it wasn't 13 or 14 or 11 or 10? It was 12 to match the 12 tribes symbolically. The 12 disciples were to be the 12 foundation stones of the renewed Israel of God. Jesus even told his 12 disciples in Matthew 19, he said this, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, here it comes, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus was rebuilding. Jesus is the shepherd gathering the scattered flock of God, the spiritual Israel. Those who truly put their trust in God, and then those are not limited to the biological offspring of Jacob. No, no, they are also to come from the Gentiles. The prophets spoke of that too. James references it in his speech in uh, Acts 15, quoting from Amos, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And Jesus himself said this in John chapter 10, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock, one shepherd. It's Ezekiel 34 ringing in John chapter 10. One flock, 12 tribes. So, James picks up on this imagery and he's writing his letter to spiritual Israel, to the 12 tribes, to the church as a whole. And he knows, of course, that the church is not yet gathered in unison around the, the throne of the Lamb. So James has in mind the church as it is currently being gathered in local assemblies here and there and everywhere in his time and ever since. And this letter of his, it's meant to circulate among all those individual churches. It's a general letter to address all of their general needs. You know, Paul's letters, for the most part, were very particular letters to particular churches addressing their particular needs. But James is writing to a very broad audience on purpose. And so in a direct sense, brothers and sisters, James is writing to us, the church in Ancaster, here as well. 
He writes to every congregation of the Lord Jesus that is living in something he describes as the dispersion. Now, what is that animal? Dispersion. Well, originally, like the twelve tribes, this was a word used to describe the Israelites in exile or after the time of exile. That word disperse simply means to scatter, to scatter abroad the people of God. They were dispersed at the time of exile into Babylon. And later, some of the people of God came back from Babylon to live in the land of Judah again, but some remained in Babylon, so there was this, this scattering that went on historically. Some people in Judah, they ran off to Egypt. That happened to Jeremiah. He was dragged off with some of the remnant left in the land. They, they went off to Egypt. Others traveled elsewhere out of fear that the Babylonians or some other power would come and, and attack them in the land. So by the, the time of James and Jesus, many Jews were living in many provinces across the Roman Empire. They were dispersed away from their rightful homeland in Israel. So James is writing to the church that is dispersed. What does that mean for us? Well, with Christians, we are spiritually dispersed. Whether you're a converted Jew or a Gentile, the church of Jesus Christ, the new Israel, is not at home in this world. Peter writes the same way at the beginning of his first letter. He says this, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, then he lists some places in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I'm writing to the spiritual exiles in Asia Minor, says Peter, while James is writing to the spiritual exiles everywhere. And brothers and sisters, you and I may never have been dragged away by force into a foreign city like the ancient Jews were to Babylon, but Christians are spiritual strangers and sojourners in this world. As Peter will say outright in chapter 2 of his first letter. But Jesus himself tells us this in John 17 about his disciples. He says, they are not of this world. And he adds, the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. You know the saying, we are to be in the world but not of the world. That's something we have to bear in mind. And James will talk about that in his letter. Friendship with the world is enmity toward God. We are spiritual strangers. We live in a spiritual dispersion scattered across the world, Christians are, in their different assemblies across the world. We are a people who don't belong to the world. We are in a minority. We are even often oppressed by the majority because they hate the Lord we love and serve. Until the Lord comes back, the church on earth will always live in a troubled state. And James, centered in Jerusalem and leading a church hated by all the Jewish authorities, James knows all about this. The church in Jerusalem had been hammered by persecution. 
So the Lord's servant, he knows the troubles we face. And he's writing to help us in those troubles. Just as we come to faith by grace, so too we must live out the faith by grace. There are trials and temptations. There are sicknesses and persecutions, as James points out. There are also battles within our own sinful hearts as well as enemies who attack us from the outside. James will instruct us about all these things because he knows full well that the people of God are in tough in the dispersion. He knows that we get discouraged and confused. He knows that we easily fall into a rut in our sin and don't seem to realize or if we do realize, don't seem to know how to get out of it. James knows those situations. He knows that we can feel burdened and sometimes we can despair as sojourners on this earth, but he also knows that our Lord above sends help and gives grace in all these things. Grace to stand fast in the faith. Grace to avoid pitfalls. Grace to make a fresh start when we've messed up. Grace to help keep us walking in the way of faith. So how do we handle all the stresses and the challenges and the troubles that we experience as spiritual strangers in this world? How do we deal with the trials that come upon us? and the sins that beset us. James helps us in this letter with answers. And that too, brothers and sisters, we have to understand, that too is grace. Grace of the Lord coming through this servant to us. Knowing how to respond is just as needful as knowing that Christ enables us to respond in repentance, in faith, in renewal. And that's how we'll keep to the right path, the way of life. Amen.